MSW Media. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 135 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, August 23rd, and the Rice County Jail is open. The Rice Street Jail in Fulton County is open for business yeah, it's today. it's jumping. It's jumping all of a sudden. <laughs> the hottest club in town is Rice Street Jail. It's got everything. I'm doing my Stefan face right now. Uh, I'm Allison Gill, everybody. Hey, and I'm Pete Strzok. We have, Allison, so, so much to cover today, <laughs> including the arrest and bond conditions for Trump and his co-conspirators in Fulton County, how Trump wanted to schedule his arrest at the same time as the GOP primary debate to steal all the media attention, which will likely work, frankly, and the FBI investigation of ongoing threats to jurors in Fulton County. And we also have at this hottest <laughs> club, uh, we have a few early filings from Mark Meadows, Jeff Clark, and David Schaefer, who are also indicted in Georgia. And remember how I said we should keep our eye on Arizona, Pete? Well, their fraudulent elector investigation has ramped up this week. And finally, there are so many other headlines. We're going to add a lightning round of quick hits to cover those. That's how much news there is. But first, let's thank our new patrons. Uh, just like public radio... Patrons make this entire show possible. Sign up at patreon.com slash aisle45pod, A-I-S-L-E, 45-P-O-D, and we'll read whatever name you sign up with. Today, we want to thank Avery Good Witness, as in a very good witness, uh, as opposed to Nauda Good Witness, Pam Paris, Thomas Fine, Sandra Cummins-Hade, Joey Johnson, Chuck Bramlett, Tracy Wentz, Rachel Knight, Sun Sun, Chris, Morton Monrad, Peterson, Fight for Democracy Grandma, and Jessica Anderson. So again, thank you. We cannot thank you enough. All right, Pete, we have a new segment, The Lightning Round, or I don't know what we're going to call it. Maybe our patrons can write in and give us a good name, but like pew, 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 it's just going to be headlines. Uh, and we're going to read through these quickly. So uh, let's get going. Over in California, John Eastman's disbarment proceedings were postponed for two days so that he could be arrested in Fulton County. That's funny to me. Uh, <laughs> that's just a great headline. Both Eastman and Clark are trying to postpone their entire disbarment proceedings and failing. Down in Georgia, Fonnie Willis has scheduled an arraignment for all 19 defendants for September 5th, which is the same day as Pete Navarro's criminal contempt trial uh, beginning. She has also requested a March 4th, 2024 trial date running right up against Trump's civil, or I'm sorry, Trump's criminal trial in Manhattan for felony falsification of business records. Uh, so many trials. Uh, and staying down in Georgia, Donald wants to change the pardon rules in that state. Because as you know, 
uh, he can't be pardoned by either himself or a, a Republican president in Georgia. And there's a pardon board in Georgia, and you can't even apply in, uh, until five years after your sentence is over for a pardon to that board. So the governor can't even do it. So he wants the he wants Congress or the legislature down there to change the pardon rules. But the Republicans in the legislature are like, nah, nah, bro, uh, we're good. We're going to we're going to leave that alone. So I think that's extra funny as well. And while in Georgia, Fonnie Willis has sent the indictment of state Senator Sean Still to Governor Brian Kemp, which could be the first step in a process to potentially form a three member commission that could recommend a suspension. And finally, let's head up to New York. Trump's request to postpone the E. Jean Carroll trial set to begin January 15th, uh, pending his appeal for absolute immunity, has been denied by Judge Lou Kaplan as frivolous. <laughs> so those are the lightning round uh, headlines for you. Excellent. So let's, let's, let's get down to it. Let's talk about Trump and his obsession with sucking all the media oxygen out of the room, which has worked successfully for him for the better part of his career. But he's doing it again. La late last week... He announced he wanted to hold a press conference to reveal a 100-page report assembled by Liz Harrington that he said would prove, prove election fraud down in Georgia. Shockingly enough, his lawyers told him no, probably said, well, quit if you do it. By many accounts, his strategist also said, don't do it, leading to the question of was this just the 2 a.m. brainstorm of Liz Harrington that was going to make each and every one of Trump's problems go away who knows? But in any event, he rather quickly, particularly for Trump, conceded and said, OK, no, 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 fine. I'm not going to have the press conference. You can wait. I'm going to submit the evidence to the court in pleadings. Having said that, be careful. As we now know, filing false elector fraud information is a crime. Georgia, in fact, overt act 108 <laughs> because there was that much crime. Overt <laughs> act 108 in the indictment says... On or about the 31st day of December 2020, Trump and Eastman committed the felony offense of filing false documents in Fulton County, Georgia, by knowingly filing a document titled Verified Complaint for Emergency Injunctive and Declaratory Relief in the matter of Trump v. Kemp in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Georgia, having reason to know that said document contained one of the following false statements. One. 2,506 felons with an uncompleted sentence voted illegally. Two, at least 66,247 underage people voted illegally. Three, 2,423 individuals voted illegally in the November 3, 2020 presidential election in Georgia who were not listed in the state's records as having been registered to vote. Four, 1,043 individuals voted illegally in the November 3, 2020 presidential election who had illegally registered to vote using postal office box as their habitation. And what are we on? Five. 10,315 or more dead people voted. And finally, deliberate misinformation was used to instruct Republican poll watchers and members of the press to leave the premises for the night at approximately 10 p.m. on November 3, 2020 at State Farm Arena in Fulton County, Georgia. So... So, Liz, Don, maybe filing lies in court documents isn't the best idea. Maybe, maybe that's what those <laughs> lawyers of yours were concerned about when they when they came to you and said, you, you, "Boss, you really probably don't want to do this." And now I guarantee he was like, "I'm just going to say it to the public. I'm not going to put it in a court document." I learned my December 31st, 2020 lesson, but probably not. 
Uh, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But he did not. It was supposed to be Monday and he did not do his press conference. And also, Pete, from Hugo Lowell at The Guardian, Trump wanted to schedule his self-surrender on the same day as the GOP primary debate, uh, which is tonight, Wednesday, so he could upstage the opening event of the Republican nominating contest. Now, Team Trump, according to Hugo Lowell, has set two priorities for this debate uh, besides not showing up. First, starve the other GOP candidates of attention, media attention, and publicly humiliate Fox News. He hasn't been liking the coverage lately. Uh, His lawyers talked him out of it and instead scheduled it for Thursday morning, thereby taking up the whole news cycle the entire day after the debate. Trump had also considered swaggering into the debate last minute without prior warning, betting that that would almost certainly cause news coverage to be about his visit, you know, his surprise visit, and not the other candidates' answers. But he has since soured on that option. Um, He also wants no mugshot taken. And the reason is weird. It's because he's selling his cool one, right? Like he he made a fake mugshot and he's been raising money off of it. I guess he doesn't want the competition of a real mugshot. (laughs) No word on that, though, since the sheriff has said uh, he's going to get a mugshot like everyone else. But I haven't heard any updates on that since after Trump's lawyers met with um with Fonnie Willis to discuss the bond conditions. So that's yeah, what's going on in, in Georgia this morning. Oh, by the way, a bunch of people have already turned themselves in and had their bonds set. We'll go over that in a little bit. Right. And there's some question too, like according to the Georgia law, the at least the mugshots are not released as a matter of practice. However, any member of the public, uh, Georgia resident or not, can request that. And I suspect uh, we'll soon have the mugshots of the the folks that have turned themselves in that we'll talk a little bit about. But you know, the question is whether height and weight are also things that you can request. And there was some debate on Twitter this morning about whether people are actually measured and weighed or if that's something you can just tell, in which case Donald Trump will be seven foot four and you know 210 pounds or something like that. But He's we'll, got Ronnie Jackson we'll in tow to <laughs> it's, it's, you're following this, Stefan. <laughs> Rice County Jail, it has mystery pea smells. It has bologna sandwiches. It has a six foot three muscle bound prison guard named Bunny. Just, uh, th- yeah. this is going to be an interesting experience, I think, for everybody. Uh, yeah. And I was thinking about that, the terrible conditions at Rice Street. But also, you know, we're going to talk about Arizona a little bit later in the show. You know, Joe Arpaio. Um, the infamous sheriff, uh, sheriff Republican sheriff there who who did things like have chain gangs. Um, he dressed inmates in pink. Uh, he gave them uh, green bologna sandwiches, like just all sorts of weird, had them breaking rocks out in the Arizona desert sun, just really weird fucking guy. And, uh, you know, it makes me wonder, like, if any of those conditions are still left over at those prisons or if they've been, you know, those prisons have been rehabilitated and what those electors over in Arizona no, I mean, could look, the, face. The, 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 the fact of the matter is like every like I was shocked my, my experience going and working, you know, particularly not not so much uh, federal prisons, but like DC, like DC CCB and, you know, the initial intake stuff like literally underground. It is like going into some weird you know, post-apocalyptic, dimly fluorescently lit concrete cave. Right, straight out of True Detective, right? Dirty, dirty secret of America is like prisons, by and large, are fucking abysmal, horrible places. And most people don't care because most people engaging in dialogue tend to be educated and privileged and don't tend to have the same prison experience either in their immediate lives or those of their family that folks who don't have the same soapbox do. So suddenly we've got Marjorie Taylor Greene discovering that, wow, 
DC, the DC prison situation is pretty crappy. Yeah, it's been pretty crappy for about the past three, four or more generations. You just didn't care about it because, you know, wealthy white people didn't typically spend a lot of time there. Same thing down at, you know, Rice Street. I guarantee you there's stories coming out. They're already out there now. You know, folks going down Fox 5 Atlanta going, we talked about this during the, uh, the, the patron happy hour. You know, stunning, you know, coming up with people who are leaving saying, well, it smells like pee in there. It's horrible. Nobody wants, nobody wants to be in there. Yeah. Prisons in America, the, the, the American incarceration system slash complex is huge. It is terrible and awful. And it, you know, it's, it's one of our dirty little national secrets. Yeah. I think uh, hopefully this will uh, shine some light on it because you know we on on our side over here have been yelling about this forever um and for for reform and to fix that uh it's yeah it's cruel all right we will be right back with those bail conditions we talked about and they're very interesting but we have to take a quick break so everybody stick around we'll be right back hi this is john crier and i am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called lawyers guns and money that'll challenge everything you think you know about u.s covert operations and presidential misconduct from jack bryan the director of american psyop comes the incredible true story of john mattis a newly sworn in miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head i step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, welcome back. We have some more patrons to thank before we get to those bail conditions. Onion Diet Coke Conspirator, Mary Sowash, <laughs> Claudia Cassano, Catherine Jones, Katie, Joseph Vigiano, Lisa Hayes, Michael Miller, Zinavore. Only Malacus vote for Trump. And I, Allison, I had to look it up. Malacus turns out is derived from the Greek 
<laughs> language, Malacca's the plural of Malacca, which without getting into too much specific detail is essentially the Greek version of the English uh, word the derogatory phrase wanker. So there you go, Malacca's. Um, Judith Taylor, Katie from Alaska, and Eric Cadegel. Thank all of you so much. Uh, as Allison said, you absolutely are the lifeblood of this, are, are partners in this, and you make this go. So uh, you are an integral part of the the family that puts all this together and uh, can't thank you enough. So let's get down to those bail conditions in Fulton County. We got a, a rundown here. Cheesebro and Eastman are out on a $100,000 bond. Ray Smith is out on a $50,000 bond, and Hall is out on a $10,000 bond. Now, Trump's bond is $200,000, which seems pretty high for not being a flight risk. Although, just last night, Trump posted on Truth uh, Social that the DA must be, I'm not making this, listen, I swear to God, and, and, and we, we texted back and forth about this, not making this up. The DA must be expecting me to flee to Russia, 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 to share a gold-domed suite with Vladimir, never to be seen or heard from again. I, it's, I, <laughs> you read this, it's like, you know, I, I assume he's trying to troll somebody, but, he, but this, this is a former president. It's not, it's not just all the crime, it's all the behavior around it. And these just juvenile, nonsensical, buddy, are you doing all right in there? Sort of bleats coming out in the middle of the night, talking about going to Russia, Russia, Russia. Anyway, they're all, you know, he's, he's posting it out there. And when you get to the actual bail conditions, and before we go on, I should note Fulton County has, there's, you don't have to post all that money. In other words, you don't have to come up with $100,000. There's a 10% program. So really, Cheeseboro and Eastman only had to come up with $10,000. Ray Smith, 5000 Hall, only a grand. And, you know, for Trump, 20000 which, you know, depending on who you believe about his financial state of uh, liquidity may or may not be a lot of money, but more important <laughs> than the money are the restrictions that are placed on each witness. And Trump, perhaps not surprisingly, has more restrictions on witness intimidation than any other co-defendant. And specifically, it goes through, you know, these are the list of them. So the defendant, i.e. Trump, shall make no direct or indirect threat of any nature against any co-defendant. The defendant shall make no direct or indirect threat of any nature against any witness, including but not limited to the individuals designated as unindicted co-conspirators 1 through 30. The defendant shall perform no act to intimidate any person known to him or her to be a co-defendant or a witness in this case, or to otherwise obstruct the administration of justice. No direct or indirect threat of any nature against the community or to any property in the community. The defendant shall make no direct or indirect threat of any nature against any victim, which, you know, arguably is the entirety of the population of the United States of America. And then finally, most interesting to, you know, I think us and, and a lot of folks, the above shall include, but are not limited to, posts on social media or reposts of posts made by another individual on social media. And if you have the misfortune of, you know, voluntarily looking at Trump's social media, he loves to repost stuff. He, he will say crazy crap on his own, but frequently he will take outrageous things from everybody from, you know, far right wing radio media folks to crazy obscure trolls and, and repost it. So, you know, his, his, uh, mm -hmm. Conditions include, you know, hey, it's not just what you're saying. All that, all that crap that you repost, we are going to treat that as your statement for the purpose. Of yeah, and he these he reposted that article that had a photo of him with a baseball bat standing next right. to Alvin Bragg. Exactly. That repost would fall directly within the confines of these restrictions. These um, 
these bond restrictions. So, you know, this is um like these were written very carefully based on his past and and current and recent behavior on on social media. So we'll see. I mean, I think they have over under in Vegas on how how long it'll take before he violates any of these. Um, but you know, and, but it's also no laughing matter uh, because right now the FBI is now helping Georgia law enforcement investigate actual serious threats being made against grand jurors, the ones that indicted Donald and his 18 co-defendants. This is from the Washington Post. A spokesperson for the FBI Atlanta, the Atlanta office, said the agency is aware of threats of violence against Fulton County officials and that it's working with Fulton County Sheriff to in, the Sheriff's Office to investigate, but declined to identify specific targets or whether anyone has acted on those threats. And this came amid growing concern about the safety of the grand jurors involved in Monday's indictment, last Monday's indictment, after their names, home addresses, photos, and social media profiles of some of the members were circulated online, along with threatening messages targeting them and Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis. Now, under Georgia law, Pete, as we know, the names of the grand jurors have to be publicly listed on indictments. That's an effort at transparency that a lot of folks, including myself, have recently questioned in light of these ongoing threats. Now, local police departments, including the Atlanta police, have also been monitoring threats against the jurors and are prepared to respond quickly. Uh, now, as soon as the indictment was published, the grand jurors' names were published in right-wing online forums. Um, usually accompanied by photos so you could identify them and personal information, addresses and phone numbers. Now, several jurors after that disabled their social media profiles on Facebook and LinkedIn and stuff. Uh, extremists posted screenshots of their pages, though, before they got taken down. Now, in the forums, users would imagine the jurors being tried and convicted because they indicted Trump. And there were thinly veiled references to death sentences or vigilante justice. So, the FBI is now working uh, with local law enforcement, county, local, state law enforcement, to investigate these death threats. We know somebody was just arrested for, uh, or charged, excuse me, arrested and charged for threatening Judge Chutkin in D.C., um, you know, uh, threatened to, to kill her and threw some racial slurs at her on a voicemail to the phone number and, the, uh, you know, the I guess the answering service in her chambers. So it's, it's there. If the threat is real. Yeah, and they aren't, you know, some of the reporting that, you know, they, the reporting I've seen is pretty good about not specifying exactly which bulletin boards they found the stuff, but they did quote some of the specifics. And I mean, this is literally a post. I mean, it's not veiled at all. Quote, these jurors have signed their death warrant by falsely indicting President Trump. I mean, that's the kind of crap that's running around. And again, you know, we talked about this during the, the bonus episode. It, it, it's not when this happens. It adds to the caseload, not just to the Fulton County Sheriff's Office, not just to Georgia authorities, but, you know, to your point, what if it's somebody in Texas making the threat? What if it's somebody in Washington, the state of Washington, making that threat? Everybody has to track it down. And what was interesting to me, Allison, is, I mean, the FBI rarely confirms or denies investigations. But in that statement from the FBI uh, spokesperson in Atlanta, they did say, however, each and every potential threat brought to our attention is taken seriously. Individuals found responsible for making threats in violation of state and or federal laws will be prosecuted. And why I thought that was interesting, there are a couple of ways that the FBI can get involved in, in local sort of 
law enforcement matters because they're, not everything uh, has federal jurisdiction. The FBI does not have authority to investigate certain lower level or state local type crimes. But in this case, you know, the FBI could. So if the Fulton County Sheriff or if the Georgia Bureau of Investigation came to the FBI and said, hey, we need your help, the FBI could do that under a provision to law enforcement sort of justification. But then the FBI could also just open its own case. Like if there is something within the FBI's jurisdiction, it doesn't matter. I mean, they'll certainly work in coordination with and help local and, and state law enforcement partners, but they have their own jurisdiction. And what was interesting about that that statement from FBI Atlanta was state and or federal laws will be prosecuted. So to me, you know, whether that was just boilerplate or whether they intentionally included that to say, hey, yeah, we're helping the locals, but there's also federal crime going on here and we're investigating that. It, it was interesting. Yeah, whatever. I'm glad they're doing it. It is a... It is more than a local problem, and I think much like tracking down the thousand plus insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, it's important to track down threats like this because not only do you you know punish the perpetrator, but it serves a deterrent effect. You know anybody you know going forward looking at the jurors for trial or all the witnesses out there, it it will serve a positive benefit hopefully to to tamp down some of the potential violence. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how federal and local officials work together. Um, you know, I talked at, at length with um, Andy McCabe about the Boston Marathon bombing uh, and how that all went down. And, you know, there were federal crimes there, uh, local law enforcement lending a hand. Um, and, you know, I think it's those discussions must be um, just very, you know, pretty high level, but also very interesting to be like, well, we're going to do this we have to take this now because we've got a bomb here involved, right? Or, you know, or it's terrorism, et cetera. Uh, and that's federal jurisdiction. And then unless it's something state. So in these kind of cases, uh, like either the woman in Texas who was arrested and charged for the threats against Judge Chutkin or these threats against the jurors, um, I, I just don't know enough about Georgia law to know what's state, what's a state crime, but what are some federal crimes that the, the FBI might say, that's us, we're going to take this? I mean, I think you got a bunch, you know, there are a bunch of voting, um, you know, Voting Rights Act type violations, vote, things involving voter intimidation. You have certainly any sort of witness intimidation to the extent that there are things being done where people are, you know, witnesses are implicated in anything Jack Smith is doing. Um, you would have, you know, gosh, I'm trying to think of, this is not my investigative wheelhouse, but um, it certainly any local request for assistance would fall within the avenues that the FBI could um, pursue. But I think a lot of, interestingly enough, during the, the laws enacted during the civil rights era in the South and all the things that were going on to try and prevent certainly minorities from voting, those laws in the 50s and, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, interestingly enough, are, are very much, you know, squarely in the sort of, uh, you know, activity that's going on right here, because it's the same sort of like, you know, intimidation of witnesses, all in the context of, I'm what I'm curious about is, given that all this is in the context of alleged voting fraud at the state level, I don't know that that would trigger any, any federal uh, violations. But, you know, there are any time, and then certainly, you know, threats against government officials. Certainly, the you know, if somebody is running around making a threat to sheriffs or you know other law enforcement officers at the state level or judges, the FBI can can get involved uh, with that as well. So there are a bunch of different uh, potential statutes that might be triggered. But you know, I suspect in this sometimes 
the partnership can be a little uh, friction laden because mm-hmm. you know. Whether yeah, it's a, I imagine there's some battles but, over jurisdiction. But I don't. Yeah. But but with this, I mean, my sense is it's not. You know, it's one thing. Like, look, I mean, and, you know, Andy Andy knows better than I do about the the Boston dynamic. I mean, that was a huge event, and it was a huge sort of traumatic event for the city of Boston and the surrounding, you know, Cambridge and Somerville and, you know, Watertown and all the places that were impacted around Boston. So that had a huge local impact and it was limited. For something like this, where it's kind of like a big threat stream that is going to continue, my sense is Georgia would welcome the assistance. I think the FBI, I I, I don't see the same potential for sort of a, a fight over jurisdiction, just because I think this is one of these things of like, People are worried about the potential of how much violence and threats may have to be addressed, are worried about not having sufficient resources to do it. And so the idea of being able to partner up with various agencies to pool those resources and sort of like, here's the huge scope of the problem, let's divvy up how we're going to approach it, I, I think would probably likely be welcomed by by most of the participants. Yeah. Then it becomes more of a, hey, just the resources. We just love the resources at that point. Not so much. Uh, we've got plenty of law enforcement. We have to figure out who's going to take this case. It's it's now like, hey, all hands on deck. We we need to help. Right, right. And and again, oh. we're not you know we're not even to Trump's turn in yet, and we're certainly not to trial. So you know, all the mm-hmm. all the stuff that's going to come, and you, you know, kind of at least last point for me on all this. Your local, I mean, yes, people can travel, right? You know, somebody can, you know, look at January six, and like every state of the union, I think, has now had people arrested for participating on January six. But by and large, your local environment has a huge role in the level of threat at any particular given place. So, you know, wherever you happen to be, you know that. In let's take you know, Georgia. Now the immediate population, Fulton County is certainly, you know, is it's a, a blue voting area. It's certainly, you know, I think um, sympathetic to the laws that Fonnie Willis is trying to enforce. But if you drive, you know, an hour or less north, I mean, you're getting up into, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district. There are folks mm-hmm. comparatively close to Atlanta who have and have expressed very, very strong feelings you know, not just Trump supporters. I'm talking about expressions of you know violent support or at least violent rhetoric. So you you really have to take a look at the geographically local environment to understand. It's one thing somebody has to like, well, I'm going to drive to Washington D.C. and it's going to take me three days, and I have to take off from work, and I got to figure out where to stay along the way. But those dumbasses still did it, I, which they still <laughs> did, right? But that is that is an order of magnitude harder than having mm-hmm. a few beers on Saturday afternoon and saying, fuck it, let's go shoot up the courthouse in a in a sort of drunken lack of judgment and, you know, hopping in the car with a bunch of weapons and driving down and trying to do it. So the local the point, all that is the local environment makes a difference. It isn't determinative, but it is important. And I think when you look, you know, tick out a, uh, what do you call it? A compass, right? And dial it into 60 miles and draw a circle around Atlanta, you got an interesting population there when it comes to this. Right. Uh, one of the reasons some of these folks want to move their cases out of state court into the federal court is because you can I- incorporate those rural areas in, in jury selection. And we're going to talk about that uh, as well, but we have to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, 
a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We have some more patrons to thank. Marvin Dog Media, E.B. and Filippi. Give it away now. The Blushing Crow, at Dirt Road Dems. I love that. Ezra Cohen, Joyce Byers, Lisa Shen, Take Care of Your Shoes, Susan Jaffe, and D.A. Taylor. All right, so before the break, I mentioned we have some interesting filings about moving stuff out of state to federal court. Mark Meadows has done that. Probably the guy with the best lawyer of the group (laughs) indicted in Fulton County. Uh, He made a pair of filings. First, he wanted to move his case out of Georgia state court and into the federal court. And the advantages here for him, as I mentioned, is that that jury pool may be a bit more conservative, uh, especially if he moves to get jurors from all counties. That's something you would make a motion for uh, in that district, including the rural ones. But overall, the district still leans Democratic, Pete. Also, if this trial is in federal court, it will not be televised. Uh, Probably. I don't see Chief Judge John Roberts growing a fucking conscience um, in the next, uh, you know, few weeks or few months, uh, to televise that trial. But maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But we learned this week that the Fulton County chief judge has approved all proceedings in this matter, including the trial and the September 5th arraignment to be televised. So that's what happens in state court, but some things that will not happen if it moves to federal court. And these are important. And I, this was brought up by uh, Anna Bauer, who's an excellent local reporter, uh, in, in Fulton County. On MSNBC, she says, first of all, it doesn't change the pardon rules. You, just because you move your case to federal court from state court doesn't mean you are now eligible for, for a pardon, a federal pardon from a president. It does not change the prosecutors in this case. It doesn't mean that federal prosecutors now need to come down and get read in and take over the case. So it doesn't delay it in that sense. And you still get the prosecutors from Fulton County. And it doesn't change 
the laws or the, or the, the crimes that are being prosecuted. Um, and also anyone worried about that new law uh, passed in the Georgia legislature allowing a commission to potentially remove a district attorney like Fonnie Willis, um, which is what DeSantis has done twice down in Florida right now, by the way, by removing two democratically elected DAs. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it's fascism, but I wouldn't worry about it effect- impacting this case. I would worry about it impacting the justice system as a whole. But for this case in particular, I'm not sure Fonnie Willis herself is going to be trying this case. Um, and even if it moves to federal court, which I don't think it will, the same prosecutors that have been working on this case uh, will likely be the ones uh, to try it in court. Also, uh, U.S. District Court Judge Steve Jones scheduled an evidentiary hearing for Meadows' removal push for August 28th. Uh, also, same day Judge Chutkin will set the trial date for Trump in D.C. So all these kind of coordinating dates, September 5th, August 28th, December 11th, we have all these dates like running into one another. Um, I remember the this great filing uh, came out yesterday or, you know, earlier this week. You're listening to this on Wednesday um, from Jack Smith, who, who he first he asked permission to respond to Donald Trump's request to have the trial in April of 2026. Immediately, Judge Chutkin approved that um, motion for him to file a response and gave him until the next day, but he filed it immediately. He had it ready to go. Um, And that seems like an ongoing theme within the Jack Smith investigation. We've got all the discovery ready. We've got it tagged. We've got it labeled. We've got timestamps. We've got it front loaded with the documents you need. We've got everything right up front. Here you go, ready to go. And this filing was ready to go. And Donald Trump filed a, I don't know, a notice to the court in Miami with Judge Aileen Cannon, right? His, the judge that's in his pocket down there, or at least was during the special master case. And he said, Your Honor, look at these, look at these inconsiderate people. They filed, uh, Jack Smith wants to have jury selection in D.C. for my coup crimes on December 11th when I'm supposed to be here for my document crimes on December 11th for a hearing in your honor's court, you should do something, take, take the appropriate action. And Jack Smith actually responded to that in this response to him wanting an April 2026 filing. And Andy called it on this, ep- this week's episode of Jack, by the way. He's like, wouldn't it be great if Jack Smith is like, fine, we won't do it December 11th, let's do it December 12th. And that's basically <laughs> what happened. Like, um, this is an easy fix. No appropriate action needs to be taken. Let's just move it. So these kinds of conflicts are going to happen more and more as we get closer to 2024. And even in October of 2023, because that's when the New York Attorney General trial, uh, Tish James, her civil $250 million fraud lawsuit begins, unless that gets moved or adjourned in favor of some federal proceeding. Yeah, and I think they're going to be particularly acute between the Fulton County case and Jack Smith's Washington, D.C. case. I mean, my, my my instinct, my gut tells me that Eileen Cannon is going to, one, be inclined to be favorable to Trump beyond a reasonable amount that somebody should be con, you know considerate about a defendant's uh, you know need for fairness. And what that will eventually translate into is her not, not you know, changing anything in DC or in Georgia, but essentially just delaying it so that, you know, that's pushed back as Trump had hoped uh, well after the election. I I would be shocked, frankly, if we see anything in uh, Fort Pierce 
go to trial before the election. And amongst the many justifications, one will be, well, I just can't do this given the workload and the obligations of all my other, you know, criming. But I think Georgia is inclined to go quickly. I think Judge Chutkin in DC is inclined to go quickly. I think particularly those two cases, the other thing that make them very interesting is you've got overlapping cast of characters. I mean, Trump is a constant on all these, but, you know, Walt Nauta and um, Dolavera are not involved outside of mm. Mar-a-Lago. Mm-hmm. But when you look at, I mean, you know, everybody from Rudy to Cheesebro to Meadows, you know, these are all folks. And, you know, particularly when you get, you know, Meadows, who is a defendant in Georgia, but isn't even by all accounts, a unnamed co-conspirator in the DC indictment, you know, is he a cooperator? But, you know, when you get to those people at a high level where they're either a witness and or a, you know, a subject under indictment, you get a lot of dynamics there that are going to become, as you said, you think listening to this, oh God, that's a lot to keep track of all these dates. It's going to get a lot worse. So, you know, that's why we're here. Buckle in. Yeah, and part of <laughs> me wonders if uh, Meadows was completely left out of that Chutkin uh, indictment, the coup indictment of Donald Trump. Um, because, uh, you know, I don't know. Have you ever been like, well, that guy's got a really good lawyer and he could probably drag this shit out for a really long time and we don't have time to do that. So, uh, you know, let's figure that out at another time. But Something interesting did happen, um, or I should say didn't happen with, with Judge Cannon. Uh, she didn't change the trial date based on the superseding indictment. I thought she might use that as a, a reason to delay that uh, May trial date, but she didn't. She kept it the same after the superseding indictment uh, consideration. So, again, I'm not saying she's rad, uh, but, but so far, um, I haven't seen any overly egregious decisions from her, but that might also be the way, right? Like death by a thousand paper cuts, a week here, two weeks there, just pushing it out and pushing it out until beyond the election. But also it's, you know, it's a SEPA case. There's a lot of considerations and things that have to be done behind the scenes, but you're right. There are so many uh, unindicted co-conspirators and indicted co-defendants in common between the DC coup case and the Fulton County case. And that could increase if Arizona throws its hat in the ring. We could see some higher level Michigan folks go. And then you've just got potential conflict, uh, not not like a ethical conflict, but date scheduling conflict um, over and over again. Yeah. And the question, I mean, right now, the Michigan defendants, there are a lot of them, but they're all very, they're they're state level officials and they're state actors. And we'll see what Arizona does. Now, if either of those states decide we're going to move up and, you know, like like Georgia did, we're going to look at federal national level figures who are coming because they were, I mean, there were folks in there. It is the same cast of characters who was pushing, who were pushing the the fake elector scheme. I mean, there was this connective tissue to John Eastman and Cheesebro and you know, yeah, the Chad Logan, Allison, the Cyber Rudy. Ninjas. I mean, they were they were showing up, and you know, Sidney Powell was showing up in you know Antrim County and in in, uh, in in Michigan. So there are national level figures, and you know, I'm very curious to see if states, you know, like you said, Arizona increasingly looking active, and certainly Michigan well underway. But whether Michigan broadens, if Michigan's done, or if they're looking potentially to indict more people, you know, that's a good question. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah. We'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah, well, we'll get to Arizona in a little bit here later in the show, but they are looking at those national level figures uh, that were, you know, the the Logans, the Cyber Ninjas, the, you know, the the I guess the under bosses of Sidney Powell uh, running around the different states in the country and trying to get stuff done, and and so, you know, that they might go up as high as that, or they might leave that to Fulton, or they might say, hey, there's just too they 
they're being taken care of elsewhere. Let's take care of these folks here. I mean, like, who knows what what to kind of calculus goes into it. But this is so sprawling and so huge and has so many defendants and witnesses that are in common that, you know, we'll see we'll see how it pans out. But yeah, and, and exactly. And the point is also that it's not just the government, whether it's state or federal government, kind of making the decisions or trying to make the decisions. The the individuals are too. And that, you know, brings us to some reporting from uh, Tamar Hallerman at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution talking about former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. His attorneys are urging a federal judge to dismiss the charges against him. And they filed a 28-page motion on Saturday arguing that Meadows is immune from state charges for the work he did when he was a federal official carrying out his job. From that filing, quote, the state's prosecution of Mr. Meadows threatens the important federal interest in providing the president of the United States with close confidential advice and assistance firmly entrenched in federal law for nearly 100 years, attorneys Joseph Englert, George DeWilliger, John Moran, and Michael Francisco argued. Now, Meadows is charged with racketeering and solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer in conjunction with actions he undertook after the 2020 elections in Georgia and Pennsylvania. And so included in the acts cited in Georgia's indictment were Meadows' unannounced December 2020 visit to the Cobb County Civic Center as a signature match audit was underway and his successful attempt to put Trump in touch with Francis Watson, then the Secretary of State's chief investigator, who was helping carry out the audit. A few days later, Meadows allegedly texted Watson and asked if there was a way to speed up signature verification uh, that the audit that was going on in Fulton County that Trump was seeking so that it could be completed before the Electoral College vote was finalized on January 6th. And finally, Meadows was also charged with solicitation of violation of oath of, public office, of a public officer for his role in the January 2nd, 2021 phone call between Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. So, you know, he... Again, as you, as you said, Meadows has good attorneys. They are, amongst all of these Georgia defendants, the ones who are out in front. They are leading the way and filing uh, the motion. Others have since filed motions to remove it. Uh, but I think Meadows is moving quickly. Meadows also doesn't want to be bogged down. But, you know, Jeff Clark comes stumbling in asking for some craziness. <laughs> Meadows is kind of like, hey, hey, I was here first. I don't, don't let me in with those folks. Hear what I have to say. Hear my request first. Let's get it all done. I don't want to be saddled with, you know, the kind of the, the knuckleheads that are kind of stumbling uh, behind me to try and come to you for this as well. But, I, you know, I don't think it's going to work. I, I don't, you know, for, for a, you know, first and foremost, this argument that, well, this was underlying it all is this is these were things done in the scope of their official job as a federal government official. It is never within the scope of your job as a federal government official to break the law. That's just not there's nothing in the scope of that. No, so, no. you know, that that, that you, you got, hey, I'm just trying to overthrow the government. That's part of my. No, it's not. That's not part of your job. You know, and then the point of that, too, is like there is. Election, there is a strong tradition going back to like the debate in the Federalist Papers about the role of the states in the conduct of elections. And elections belong to the state. The administration of the elections for the presidency belong to the states. And Meadows is a federal executive. And this has gone up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is to that general idea has ruled. And there is case law and precedent from the Supreme Court saying, look, when it comes to the administration of Elections for the president, the strength of the state and the agency of the state to do that 
is really strong and is, you know, again, backed by the Constitution, backed by Supreme Court ruling. And so I think for Trump to come in or for Meadows to come in and say, hey, you know, this needs to be removed because I was a federal official. It's like, no, this is, this was stuff you were doing. Not only was it outside the scope of your federal job, this was your, your, your interfering in a state process that the state has primacy over uh, doing, executing, and then also enforcing if there are violations of it. So, um, yeah, I, I think... I hope that will be uh, denied, but we'll we'll see. Yeah, I I also think that it that it will be. I mean, imagine what would happen over on the other side if Ron Klain showed up in twenty twenty four down in a swing state to oversee the state's election functions. I mean, that in its in and of itself is just blow. It's just mind blowing. But but here's the other thing that I w- was thinking of when you when you were talking about this, you know, under the color of his job, like within the duties of my job, this is campaigning. Even if somehow some court somewhere says, yeah, okay, I could see how this is part of your job as chief of staff to go down and and check it on elections in the states. Uh, even if that was the case. This was a political thing. He was campaigning. That is not part of your job. Supreme Court has made that determination. Remember when Mo Brooks, Pete, was trying to get certified by the DOJ? That's when DOJ comes in and uh, represents you in your in a lawsuit against you, and it basically dismisses the case. Uh, because I think Blasingame, uh, which was a, a group of... Um, Capitol Police officers and Eric Swalwell, and I think Benny Thompson too, but he withdrew because he became the the head of the January 6th Select Committee. There were several civil lawsuits against Donald Trump and and Mo Brooks and you know people who made the speeches at the Ellipse for inciting the insurrection. And Mo Brooks was like, "Hey DOJ, I was just doing my job. You need to step in here and represent me in this case." And the DOJ said, "No, um, no. First of all, again, overthrowing the government." It can't be part of your job in the government, nor can it be any federal employee's job. They threw that in there, which I thought was interesting. And then they said, even if, and we see this a lot in, in you know, arguments and pleadings to the court and sometimes in rulings from judges, even if, you, you know, the court decides, this court decides that that is, you know, protected speech or somehow part of his job duties, he was campaigning and therefore it is outside the scope uh, of his job. I remember this so clearly because I thought it was really interesting that the DOJ ruled that. Um, and that ruling also might be why Jack Smith did not charge Donald with inciting an insurrection because the court ruled that Mo Brooks's speech on the ellipse that day was first amendment protected speech. And if I, and if I'm Donald Trump and I'm charged with insurrection, I'm bringing that ruling up in D.C. because that's the same jurisdiction in, in which it happened. So you and I might 100% look at that and be like, yeah, he, he incited an insurrection. He sent, sent that angry mob. Now, Jack Smith's bringing it up under the Ku Klux Klan Act 241 violation uh, or, or um, conspiracy against rights rather than the insurrection inciting an insurrection because uh, the D.C. court has ruled that at least somebody else who spoke that day uh, was speaking within the confines of their First Amendment rights of free speech. Yeah, and you know, let's not forget too, in the context of certainly on the uh, congressional side, like Lindsey Graham fought and lost going to testify before the Fulton County. You know, again, he was mm-hmm. claiming you know the, this is 
There's no speech proper place for a senator to appear in a state proceeding. This is covered by speech or debate, and is he lost? It's like, nope, it's not. And, you know, similarly, Trump saying that you know his allegedly, well, his defamatory statements towards Eugene Carroll were you know part of his presidential duties, and eventually, you know, shockingly, you know, after initially defending that, the the Biden administration said nope, you know, and withdrew that you know sort of representation that you know you can go say these things, but that's not part of your that's not part of your official duty. So. You know, mm-hmm. we'll see what happens there. I do think some of that, you know, I'm I'm curious like why why Jack Smith maybe didn't charge the insurrection. I think there part of what is going on, I think, is there are some appeals right now in DC for some, I think it's the Proud Boys, might be the Oath Keepers that are at the DC Circuit Court of Appeals that are looking at some of the um crimes they were convicted of, certainly when it comes to seditious conspiracy and and it will be interesting to see where the Circuit Court of Appeals comes down. And I think if and until we get some sort of resolution about the state of the law, I think there are some some statutes at the federal level that perhaps Jack Smith doesn't want to bring into play until um, these appeals get settled. But that, you know, that's a yeah. lot. That's a huge amount of speculation. This Meadows immunity situation uh, also sounds a lot like the Pence, where he was trying to get immunity under something yep. else called the Speech or Debate Clause for his role. Uh, as a, the president of the Senate that day. And the court was like, yeah, you were president of the Senate that day. Speech or debate does apply to you, but not in any conversations that you had with the executive branch about overthrowing the government or any other conversations where anybody tried to get you to commit a crime or do anything outside of the scope of your job duties. And going down to Georgia and looking at you know signature verification is outside the scope of your duty, man. I'm sorry, but it is. And I think that I think that that's how the court will rule here. And I think that even this Supreme Court, because they have recently made this ruling, I think they'll rule uh, the same way. We've seen it over and over again. Uh, and I, I haven't, I can't think of a single case where anybody's actually won this particular argument. So I don't think Meadows is going to win it either. All right. What do we have next? All right. Well, we got a couple more filings and some brief stories to get to, but we have to take a quick break before we do that. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. 
expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, welcome back. Last group of patrons to thank, and these are our Hall of Fame patrons, the rock stars of this program. Hall of Famers pledge at the $10 per episode level or higher and get their name shouted out every month or so. So thanks so much to Dude, January 20, baby, a dinosaur in dental school, insert witty name here, Chris Simpson, mm-hmm. David in Brooklyn, Lance Buckley, Greg Kreimer, Charles Jones, and Patty B. Thank all of you. Again, you are the true heroes, the rock stars of this program. Um, You know, you you go above and beyond to allow us to do this and uh, can't thank you enough for your support. So thank each and every one of you. Uh, We we both really appreciate it. So with that, let's head out to Arizona. And Allison, as you mentioned, after the uh, Michigan and Georgia indictments, you tweeted, all eyes on Arizona. Well, reporting from uh, Ronsley and Subsang at Rolling Stone, notes that Arizona's criminal probe into the 2020 fake electors plot is heating up, and investigators are now asking plenty of questions about a key Donald Trump ally involved in it, former former state GOP chair Kelly Ward. The Arizona probe has been accelerating in recent weeks with prosecutors gathering evidence and speaking with individuals with knowledge of how the fake electors scheme was carried out in the state. One source describes Arizona's investigators as quote-unquote moving aggressively on this stage of the inquiry into the state's pro-Trump fake electors, which included Ward, a Trump hardliner and then-chair of the Arizona Republican Party. Ward, along with her husband Michael, and nine other Arizona Republicans forged an electoral certificate, which the electors in both Michigan and Fulton County now face felony charges for. In an email from Trump-aligned attorney Kenneth Cheesebro to colleagues on the Trump team, the attorney relayed concerns from Ward and Republican State Senator Kathy Townsend about the legality of the ploy. Let's just put it all there in writing. Investigators have started asking questions about any potential contacts between false electors such as Ward, then-President Trump, and other out-of-state officials and lawyers working on his behalf to steal the election. Quote, they actually have themselves on video doing it, unquote, says one of the people familiar <laughs> with the stage of the investigation. Continuing, quote, it is as if Ward and everyone else were thinking, how do we make this a walk in the park for the prosecutors, unquote, <laughs> which is never, never great as an investigator, great as the prosecutor. Please turn on the audio tape. If you have video, that's even better. Please make sure it's rolling and then walk through the elements of the crime. But seeing that sort of like those statements coming from people aware of the investigation in that level of detail you know, not just heating up, it, it sounds beyond heating up. It sounds like they've got real tangible, chargeable crimes there. And again, you know, as we talked about earlier, not just not just Arizona officials looking at 
national out-of-state officials and lawyers who are working on it. And and I suspect, you know, again, these are many of the same people that we saw already indicted in Fulton County. And we'll see if they if if they end up showing up in uh, Arizona indictment. Yeah, and if I'm Chris Mays, Attorney General down there in Arizona, or the the prosecutor that they've put in charge of of this particular case, they did put a special prosecutor in charge of this case in Arizona. Uh, and Arizona does have a RICO statute. I'm calling up Fonnie Willis, and I'm saying, tell me your best practices and what to avoid. I'm calling up uh, Dana Nessel and saying, hey, what, what, what works and what doesn't here? What should I be looking for? I mean, we've we've got a template now for charging fraudulent electors in a coup attempt in this country. So uh, that's that's what I would be doing, and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that hasn't happened yet. So... Um, Good on you, Arizona. We'll keep an eye on there. Some late-breaking news Monday night, though, uh, Pete. Both David Shaver and Jeffrey Clark have filed notices in Fulton County to move their criminal charges to federal court, just like Mark Meadows did. They were probably like, oh, look, good idea, and then probably just sort of copied off that guy's paper. Uh, and then you get then you get the, the counsel of Terwilliger without having to pay for it. Um, but uh, Clark says he's also going to be seeking emergency relief against the state Attempting to execute on any arrest warrants. Pete, what, what, you tweeted about this. What was this about? Well, well, you know, and it's not just that. I mean, Jeff, Jeffrey Clark, the, you know, and I, I tweeted that should, I would hope, God give us all the sense of an entitlement of a mediocre white, white man. Yeah. man. I, it just, not only does he ask like, hey, I want, you know, immediate relief. I want an injunction from being arrested because since this is not a lawful warrant or indictment out of Georgia and it's going to get removed to the state or to the federal level, I shouldn't have to be subjected to arrest coming out of Georgia because their whole thing is null and void. So that's essentially his argument, which is BS. Sounds like Navarro. Do they have the same lawyer? <laughs> yes, it's Navarro. It is the entitled mediocre white man. That That is these, these pasty-faced, mayonnaise-eaten, entitled, couldn't bench press 32 pounds, just... You know, the, the land of driveway underwear standards. I, I just horrible. You know, and not only that. And so he files it last night. And by the way, Fonnie Willis has said noon. Mother effers, you knuckleheads. Noon. You have. This is a week ago on you know whenever that was Monday, Tuesday. But in it, not next week, Friday. So I'm giving you two weeks. You need to turn yourself in. And if not, you know, we enter the find out stage. So then last night, Monday night, the week later. Clark's attorneys filed this, and it's interesting that not only does he say, it's a bad, it's not a real thing, you know, you don't need to arrest me, and I'm going to read this because this is from the filing, quote, not only cancel this arrest warrant, and through your what we're asking you, to preserve both the overarching federal interest under the Supremacy Clause and Mr. Clark's constitutional immunities pending the court's resolution of whether further state-level proceedings are stayed, pursuant to these sites, Mr. Clark asked the court either to grant a stay or a temporary restraining order against Fulton County on or before 5 p.m. Tuesday, August 22nd, 2023, i.e. today when we're taping. So we're filing this last night on Monday night, August 21st. Oh, by the way, court, while you're at it, you know, chop, chop, we we need an answer by 5 p.m. (laughs) tomorrow. Why? Or to grant administrative stay as we described below. Why? Quote, if the court grants a stay or TRO that quickly, Mr. Clark would not need to be put the choice of making rush travel arrangements to fly into Atlanta or instead risking being labeled a fugitive. <laughs> I, no, you knucklehead. Get this in sooner or don't do it at all. And if it doesn't happen, 
then get your ass down to fucking Georgia by Friday at noon or you're going to have an arrest warrant issued. Like every Mm -hmm. other defendant in the United States of America at the federal, state, or local level. Your little Mm -hmm. oil spill expertise does not get you an exemption to the criminal justice process. And the fact that you are not only saying, hey, late Monday night filing court, you got, you know, I'm going to give you eight work. I'm going to give you a full working day. You know, can you do this by 5 p.m.? You, you got you go to work at nine. Just clear your schedule and, and rule on my motion for temporary restraining order. So I don't have to be inconvenienced by making rushed travel arrangements. Mm-hmm. Fuck you. Is that a week? Is that a week? But, but, but who the, literally... <laughs> I, I want to say, who the fuck do you think you are? But the sad answer is, well, you're almost the Attorney General of the United States of America. God, Ugh, that okay? Because, because that's because by. because these are the type these are the type of people these are the people who will inhabit the cabinet level jobs in the next Trump administration if that comes to pass. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. In fact, if Trump wins the 2024 election, I guarantee you Jeffrey Clark will be attorney general and be pardoned. Uh, That's that's how it'll go. Um, Very, very frank. He'll put Kosh Patel ahead of the the, head of the NSA. I mean, like, it's so terrifying. No, I I think Kosh is going to FBI, frankly. That's Ray's. Oh, you think FBI? Because he was over at the DOD before. Clean clean house. Clean house. Mm. Get rid of the deep state. Oh, right. The deep state of the military. All right. Um, what what else do we? Because we've got a couple other random stories here. I'm gonna I'm gonna take this one because I know you've got a little special rant that you want to do at the end here for some some news that dropped this morning. Yeah. Not, not now that I'm getting warmed up. Yeah. Let's go. This is this is this, we should save this for the bonus episode. We're we're rapidly <laughs> getting into <laughs> bonus episode territory. Curb my enthusiasm. Yeah. To- totally random other news. Uh, that's hilarious. Our friend Mimi Roca, she's the Westchester County in New York. She's the district attorney there. She's actually opened a criminal investigation into James O'Keefe, former head of Project Veritas. You know, the board put him on leave back in February for mismanagement of funds, just blowing all their donor money on personal shit, and just also generally being an asshole, uh, creating a hostile work environment and stuff like that. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, it's unclear what the investigation is about, um, but, but the timing suggests it's probably about the mismanagement of funds. For example, $14,000 that the board of Project Veritas said O'Keefe spent on a charter flight to meet someone to fix his boat under the guise of meeting with a donor. And I mean, who among (laughs) us hasn't needed to book an emergency charter flight on a private jet to fix our boat? If only Jeff Clark, if only Jeff Clark had access to that, he wouldn't have to be bothered by late minute travel arrangements if he could use What else am I supposed to do? Go on a trip with... Clarence Thomas instead. Um, so, you know, anyway, O'Keefe is already, by the way, under federal criminal investigation for his involvement of the theft of Ashley Biden's diary. So uh, I, I remember back in February, he stepped down. I'm like, oh, oh, he must be in trouble. Well, yep, looks like it. So we'll see. We'll see. I mean, you know, there's no charges yet. And I should say hasn't been charged with any crimes, denies all wrongdoing. Everything is alleged. And if he is charged, he is innocent until proven guilty. But dude's probably going to prison. Yeah. And and so to conclude, I just wanted to, again, pivoting to a, a random thing, to Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Now, if you're wondering who that is, you're not alone because he's, you know, polling down around, you know, uh, uh, Asa Hutchinson territory. But he uh, 
was a tech bro and a pharma bro in 2022 by way of sort of example of who he is. He founded an investment firm positioning itself in opposition to ESG initiatives and ESG or environmental, social, and corporate governance initiatives trying to like look and regulate and encourage companies to engage in environmentally friendly or social, uh, re- socially or corporately responsible governance practices. He took the opposite side because in this day and age of you know uh, the, the flash flooding and hurricane, Allison, that you just lived through that hadn't seen the, the lower California in I think, what, 70, 80 years on top of unprecedented fires across Canada, on top of unprecedented ocean warming, who the fuck doesn't want an investment firm so we can invest in some chlorofluorocarbons to, you know, just generate out and eat, eat up the ozone layer. Maybe we can just get a bunch of coal burners for the back of our flatbed trucks just to, you know, generate some soot as we drive down the highway. But anyway, he, he literally founded an investment firm positioning itself opposed to environmental initiatives. Even Alex Jones, this quote from Alex Jones, Alex Jones described him as Alex Jones 2.0. And the reason I'm particularly worked up about Vivek Earlier this week, he said in an interview, quote, I think it is legitimate to say how many police, how many federal agents were on the planes that hit the Twin Towers? Maybe the answer is zero. It probably is zero for all I know, right? Now, in doing, and this is the, the, the goddamn Tucker Carlson model of a very smart man who knows the answer to the question, who is quote unquote, just asking questions, even though they know what the answer is. And and mm-hmm. look, I, so Vivek was 16 years. I looked it up. He was 16 years old on 9/11. I was 20, no, 31, and I was out at Logan Airport, and I was running down around all these airlines, getting the manifest list of every single goddamn flight that left Boston that morning, and there were no law enforcement officers or police officers on the planes that hit the Twin Towers. And if you don't trust me because I'm a devious member of the deep state, a coup plotter. <laughs> Go to the line, the 9-11 memorial, go to the National Law Enforcement Police Officer sites. They post every single law enforcement officer that died on 9-11. Not one of them on a plane that crashed in there. Now, of course, Vivek, Caitlin Collins, who did a great job interviewing him on CNN last night, and she pushed him on. And he's like, oh, you know, when he hemmed and hawed, and well, the government lied to us. And, and she finally pushed him into saying, are you saying 9-11 was an inside job? He said, no, no, of course not. This is all, you know, they lied to us about the Saudis and what the Saudis did or didn't. It's like, well, stop trying to change the subject. When you go out and you give an interview saying it's legitimate to say how many police, how many federal agents were on these planes. Well, he actually denied he actually said that. He said that the reporter totally misquoted him like like the media does. And he never said that. Uh, And what I mean is I'm just asking questions. He didn't even he didn't even denounce. He didn't he wouldn't even say I don't think that there were federal agents or law enforcement on those planes. He wouldn't say that because that would remove the seed of conspiracy from the ground he's planted in fucking idiots' heads across the country. And that's exactly what's going on. He is a bright man. I I, I think he's a scumbag, but he graduated from Harvard undergrad. He got his law degree from Yale. He is a bright man. He knows full well that 9-11 was not an inside job. He knows full well that that is a dog whistle for the conspiracy-minded QAnon knuckleheads that are deeply entrenched in Magaland that he is trying to curry favor with. So with that Harvard and Yale education, he is taking the, one of the largest national tragedies in our nation's history. He is taking each and every survivor's sorrow and pain from that day and churning it out into conspiracy chum 
for the fucking assholes who eat that stuff. And he's doing it, in my opinion, knowingly. He's not some crazy Lauren Boebert. I think it's true. He knows better, just like Tucker Carlson knows better. And he's a piece of garbage for doing that. And the sooner he gets his ass handed to him in this primary, in my opinion, the better. But I, sorry, I just wanted to call that out because I think it's despicable. I think it is a horrible thing to do from every single person who lost their life on 9-11, all of their families, their loved ones, to be playing on that to, to gather, what, a couple of fucking votes from yeah. some QAnon In, in an election following that he's person? not going to win. In right. an election he knows he's not going to win. He's just trying to up his brand. That's, that's all he's doing. We know that. Um, uh, well, hey, everybody. Uh, no, that was a little bit... Uh, those last two stories were a little rando, uh, but they needed to be covered, and so we appreciate you taking the time to listen. And thanks again to our patrons. Um, uh, there's going to be a lot to report after... After this uh, self-surrender by Donald Trump tomorrow at Rice Street in Fulton County at the jail there. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll be reporting on it and anything else that happens. And we'll keep our eye on Arizona for you. Do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here this week, Pete? No, only it tickles me somewhat only to uh, know that by the time you're listening to this post-production, we'll soon be very, whether we're looking at the adventures of Smokey and the Underwear Bandit as Jeffrey Clark goes on the run, becomes a fugitive <laughs> from justice in, in Atlanta. We'll know, we'll know soon enough. I suspect yeah. like most pasty self-entitled mediocre white men he will fold like a cheap <laughs> stack of cards and shuffle his way in to the jailhouse i'm guessing thursday afternoon a fold like a cheap prison jumpsuit yes right? exactly on his on his last minute 600 dollars round trip flight out of national <laughs> oh it's I booked already you know it's already booked he's not gonna yeah you, come on <laughs> Uh, and it was probably paid for by the Save America pack. All right, everybody, we'll, we'll see you next week. Uh, thanks so much uh, for listening. Again, I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Struck. And this is Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first time lawyer, I wanna act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. 
They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.